the win is that you then got to break through your upper limit of who am I to do this, comparing yourself, imposter syndrome. It's like you do that enough, you're going to be set free. And that's the satisfaction you're after. That's really the success is doing it. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Famous Failures, where I interview the world's most interesting people about their failures and what they learn from them. I'm your host, Ozan Varol. I am so excited about today's guest. This was one of the very best conversations I've had on this podcast since I started it over two years ago. Kathy Heller is the host of the popular podcast, Don't Keep Your Day Job, which was given the number one spot on iTunes for the new year in 2018 and 2019. She started out as a singer-songwriter and first found success licensing her music to television, films, and ads. After making a multi-six-figure living with her music, Kathy started a music agency and began teaching other artists to grow their own careers. You can subscribe to Kathy's podcast, Don't Keep Your Day Job, at your favorite podcast listening app. And you can also follow her on Instagram. She is Kathy Heller. That's Kathy with a C. In the episode, Kathy and I discuss Kathy's heartbreaking experience of being dropped from two record labels. The lesson we should all learn from the COVID-19 pandemic, how Kathy found her passion through a series of day jobs, how she grew an immensely successful online business without knowing how to make an online business work, why you need to give yourself permission to be mediocre, how Kathy allows her authentic self to shine through, what she thinks our greatest human need is, and finally, the life lessons that Kathy is still trying to learn. Before I play you the interview, a reminder that today, April 21st, is the deadline for grabbing the bonus pack of videos that come with ordering my new book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist. To find the details of that offer, head over to rocketsciencebook.com forward slash podcast. That's rocketsciencebook.com forward slash podcast. But basically, you'll get a video training with a behind the scenes look at my productivity system. I'll reveal some of the productivity tips that allow me to write Think Like a Rocket Scientist in record time. And these are valuable for achieving greater efficiency in in whatever work you might be in. And then you'll also get a pack of 12 three-minute bite-sized videos with actionable insights from the book that you can implement right away. And again, to find those, just head over to rocketsciencebook.com forward slash podcast. And thank you so much, as always, for listening. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So earlier in your life, you moved to Los Angeles to become a musician. You had two major record deals, but then you were dropped. I think this was at around in around 2007. Can you take us back to that moment and walk us through what happened? Yeah, it was not great, but it wound up being such a blessing as often those things turn into blessings. But, um, you know, I had that dream my whole life. I wanted to be a rock star my whole life for so many reasons, not just because of, you know, it's a cool thing. It's because as a kid, the one thing that kept me going through my parents' abusive marriage, through their divorce was songwriting, was singing, was connecting with people through music. So I had this vision that one day I'd come out to LA and this would all happen. It would sort of be validating to like everything I had been through and how invisible I felt. I wouldn't be invisible anymore. And I would get to do this thing. And so can you imagine actually having the thing and then you you lose it, right? 
I mean, to make it more real, I was sitting at a re- recording studio called Sunset Sounds with Lady Gaga. She was recording paparazzi and I had just been signed to the same label. That was my reality. Like wow. I was there, you know, I was in the, I was in, I was at A&M Records. A&M Records was uh, bought by Henson and uh, that studio is gorgeous, the Henson Recording Studio. And I was there recording a song and that's the same recording studio where We Are the World was created and Joni Mitchell recorded her whole album, Blue. I mean, just to get to do these things and to be in those spaces and getting to be that close to, to this thing that you've always wanted your whole life and then to not have it anymore, that's hard. Yeah, that's that's heartbreaking. So why yeah. why were you dropped from the labels? Because they didn't know without a shadow of a doubt like that they would be able to sell the record and I don't blame them. I mean, mm. I write really nice, cool, sweet songs, but they're not smash radio hits. You know, I have a good voice and I think that the way I sing, people feel like it comes from my heart and they connect to it in some way. But this wasn't like this was the era of Gaga, Pussycat Dolls, Kelly Clarkson. I don't write those big pop songs. I think they just were, you know, they weren't sure if we'd sell a ton of records. And I think that they were right. I don't know if we would have sold a ton of records either, given what it takes. So yeah, I was dropped. You mentioned that this ended up being a, a blessing for you. And and I, I'd love for you to speak more about that, especially since we're recording this in, in early April when the COVID-19 pandemic is just wreaking havoc on the world. And I'm sure many of our listeners, their lives have been disrupted. Their businesses have been disrupted. Oh, they may so have, sad. Yeah, so, so tragic. They may have lost their jobs. So, I mean, you found yourself in a somewhat similar position back in 2007 when you had these two deals and, and they fell through. Can you walk us through what you did next, just with an eye toward maybe sharing some strategies with people who who are listening, who may have found themselves in a similar situation right now? Yes. I feel like one thing that I'm I'm thinking in this moment where we are right now is that if if businesses don't survive, right, and they don't make it, I wonder if, if there's a new question to ask about those businesses, which is, was the way I was doing it 100% essential? Mm. You know, like... Was it in complete alignment with really who I am and what I do that is my work in this world? Or is there something else that's really my work to do? I think about a puzzle and how each one of us is like a puzzle piece. And there's nothing more frustrating than like finishing a puzzle and then you realize you're missing a piece and it just sticks out. It's so annoying. And every one of us is a piece that is needed. And sometimes we're so busy trying to be this other piece that we're not us and then the world is missing something. And so what's interesting is that a year ago before the pandemic, 1.6 million Americans attempted suicide. That's a lot. That's way more people than are, you know, on ventilators right now. And 54% of this country last year said they were suffering from depression and they were on some form of medication. Do you understand that number? That's insane. And so we had a problem with isolation. We're now just finally doing something about it. So what a way to flip it, right? Like people were already feeling isolated and lonely. The loneliness was the number one reason people stated for depression. So we had loneliness and we had depression and now businesses are going by the wayside and people are saying, wait a minute, does the world need more stuff or does the world need more connection? And how is presence something I can provide? And how is empathy something I can provide? And what would that look like? Because 
for people like me, I have a multi seven figure online business where everything I do is online. My podcasts, my courses, the groups that I run, it's all online. So my business is actually seeing a 300% increase in attention, right? So there is a definite need. And as long as there's a need, supply and demand is what makes the economy go around. So what I did when I left the label is ask that question. If it didn't work, was it absolutely essential to me? Was it my work? And I think the reason why I kind of knew right away I would be okay is because I knew that if I got dropped, not just once, but twice, that that was like a merciful way of the world saying, God saying, this isn't your work. This is Gaga's work. It's not yours. Now, what was painful is I didn't know what my work was, but I knew I was willing to find it. And I knew that it didn't have to be this way. I was willing to say, show me how to serve. Show me what the world wants for me. I'm up for it. And then comes the really courageous part, which is I'm going to start to try a few things to figure out which key will unlock this door. And that's what I did. So first I went and got a few day jobs. I worked in a nonprofit. I worked in a real estate firm and I wasn't happy. And I realized I couldn't build other people's dreams because it didn't feel like my work. So I said, well, what is my work? And I started asking questions like, could I do anything else with my music? And I started to find examples of people licensing their music to film and TV and ads. And it actually, that worked for me. I wound up making a few hundred thousand dollars a year licensing songs to Coca-Cola, Target, Pretty Little Liars, Grey's Anatomy. That became like my thing. And that's really cool because what we know is we reach for the highest branch we see. So part of what I love to do on my podcast, which is what I think you do with what you, with the work you do, is you show people a new possibility of how to interpret something, of how to appreciate something, of how to do something. And when we see a new possibility, boom, it's like a whole new path opens up. We're like, oh, I could take that road, right? A whole new road, a whole new way of getting to this place. So that's exciting. So the question is, what roads are available now but like really like the the most awesome roads, like the roads that were better than the other roads, right? Like, oh my God, I didn't realize this. So that was awesome. And that does exist right now in so many different ways. You know, I know people who are like, well, I don't have a business right now. It's like, do you know other people who have a business you want to shine a light on? You could just affiliate their businesses. Do you really deep down when you, when all is said and done and there's nothing to do in your free time, do you bake? Do you find yourself wanting to reach out to people? Do you find yourself wanting to con connect with other moms, with other guys, with other, like, what do you do when everything falls away? What is left for you truly? And so I asked myself those questions and I realized licensing music was working, but then I still wanted to do something more. I had this pull towards contribution. I had this pull and I realized part of the reason I always loved being on stage and writing music is because I really, really wanted to like affect other people. And I wanted to have a way of making a mark in the world. I felt so drawn to that. And again, I didn't know how, but I just kept thinking, how could I do that? How could I do more of that? And I would just look for the opportunities and see if I could find a way to do something I liked that other people needed. And the next thing that came was a knock at the door. And it was a lot of other artists saying, can you teach me now how you've had success? Like you've been licensing your music to TV and film. Can you show me how to do that? And at first I said, nah. And then I said, well, people keep asking me for that. Maybe I should do that. And so I leaned into that and I went from making $300,000 writing music for film and TV every year to making $2 million a year teaching people how to license their music to film and TV. And that was a girl who didn't know anything about webinars or digital products. Like I was just being myself. Like I don't use slideshows anyway. I still don't know what webinars are. I just literally <laughs> simply went online and decided to 
have the courage to do it messy and raise my hand and say, I've gotten this result. I like it. I guess I could teach it to you. Let's do this. And then it worked. And so the word of mouth of the people that I served, that just served more people. I never had to sell. I never had to spend money on the Facebook. I just don't know how to do that anyway. I'm a songwriter for God's sakes. I'm not a digital online specialist, but boy, did it work. And then one of my students said, you should start a podcast because so much of what you teach is about being resourceful, finding new ways, asking better questions and showing up and having courage to make things that are mediocre. So I started a podcast called Don't Keep Your Day Job and I'm helping people figure out for years. I mean, three years ago, I started the show way before this crisis, asking people, what is it you really want to do? Is there a way for you to make a living doing what you want to do rather than just working for this other person? Do you have the courage to be messy and make things? And so now here I am three years later teaching people, how do you grow a really engaged audience and monetize the thing you do for those people? And it's fun and it's a no brainer. And I wish people can sit from where I'm sitting, because you would literally go, oh, this is the greatest opportunity ever because now I can go build that thing because it's 100% possible for me to build this right from where I am, right from my computer and make more money and have more impact than I ever have because that's literally my life. It's not a joke. It's not a, a pipe dream. It's literally my life. All right. There is so much to unpack there, Kathy. That was that was really helpful. So I want to return to a couple of different themes. One is you mentioned now twice this idea of of doing messy and the courage to be messy. I'd love for you to speak a little bit more about that. So the idea of of getting comfortable producing messy things instead of, of perfection. Yeah. I mean, that is everything. Like in my book, I have people write a permission slip to themselves. And it's so important because everybody who ever started out doing anything, they had to give themselves grace to be mediocre. Ed Sheeran says that his first songs, it was equivalent to like going to a cabin in Vermont and you turn on the faucet and the water is like brown and then you let it run and it gets clearer and clearer. And it's not because there's something wrong with the water. It's just the pipes, you know, you got to kind of push through that old stuff and then you get all the great stuff, right? Push through it. So he says, I had to write my way through the brown sludgy water and you write through the mediocre stuff. That's why when I see someone at the Hollywood Bowl, when I see someone hosting a great podcast, when I see someone who's a great author, when I see someone doing anything great, parenting, marriage, anything, I think that person has courage because I know that in order for them to have achieved mastery over it, they had to make a lot of things that were mediocre at best in order to get to the things that were brilliant. And when you give yourself permission to be mediocre and you do it and do it and do it, you won't be able to help it. The brilliant stuff will slip out. And that is the magic of giving yourself the grace. So my first songs were not good. The next batch were a little better. My first podcast, not my best. My first time dating, my first time taking my daughter home from the hospital, not the best few months of my life, but you get better at it. And I would never be able to do it well if I didn't do it poorly first. We have an obsession with grand openings in society, but I always say the opening doesn't have to be grand as long as the finale is. Yeah. So you have to be okay with uh, with Ed Sheeran's brown water, or it also reminded me of Ernest Hemingway's shitty first draft, right? You have to get that out yeah. onto the page. And as Neil Gaiman also says, who's one of my favorite authors, he says, you can't fix a blank page. But you can take a shitty draft. You can take a crappy, you know, song lyric and, and make it better. So having yeah. the courage and, and permission to start is really, really important. 
Yeah. And one thing that I think is important is to change your definition of the failure and the success, Mm. because I think that we all walk around with like a big old set of limiting beliefs and like, it's kind of like a really low ceiling on who we are, what's possible, what's not possible, what we're good at, what we're not. So we have this like upper limit, right? And what I think is that when you go to do the thing and you're thinking that the win is like, 50 people liked the blog post. Yay. It was a success. Or all these people subscribed to the podcast. Good. It's a success. It's like, no, whether they liked it or not, whether they hated it or not, the win is you had the courage to choose to do it because it's not our job to worry about how it's received every second. Our job is to make the choice to do the thing that we know we're being called to do and then to do the next thing and then to do the next thing and then to let it be like, that's the win. The win is that you then got to break through your upper limit of who am I to do this? Comparing yourself, imposter syndrome. It's like, you do that enough. You're going to be set free. And that's the satisfaction you're after. That's really the success is doing it. I'd love to dig a little deeper into the imposter syndrome. On a previous interview, you talked about how you were approached to write a theme song for a Netflix show. And this voice in your head basically told you that you didn't have anything good to say. Can you tell us about that feeling and how you stop imposter syndrome or those limiting beliefs from from paralyzing you? Yeah. I mean, every single time I'm asked to do something important, I want to say no. I had the flu, like influenza B, like literally had the flu in December. And I was laying in bed with the flu, feeling so sick. And I was so bummed that I had said yes to this huge speaking gig at the end of January. It was bothering me so much. I was like, oh, I wish I could cancel it, but they already paid me $20,000. Why did I say yes? I'm going to be speaking in front of 2000 people. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I just had such imposter syndrome about it. And I have had that so many times, you know, like you said, with the Netflix thing, I literally typed back to this guy. He said, can you, can you send in a submission for this theme song? And I wrote, wrote back, no, I just had a baby. And then I deleted it Hmm. and wrote, tell me more. Uh, But I wanted to say no. What happens is, you know, all of this self-doubt, like I can't do it. What are they crazy? You know, all this stuff. It's a couple things. One, I think that's false humility. That's what I've realized because it's not about us. It's about them. And I wasn't put in the world to be the one and only person, you know, worthy of starting a podcast or getting up to speak or whatever it is. Like there is not a human being, like not even Oprah was told, Hey, um, yeah, you're going to go have this career because you're worthy of it. And, uh, you pass this test. So here's your permission slip to go be Oprah, Hmm. you know, like she had to like, just sort of brave her way through it. Right. So I think what it comes down to is people don't need the expert. People don't need you to be all together. What people really, really, really need is somebody who's present. And so I always remember that. I'm like, you know what, Kath, if you get up on stage in front of 2000 people and you don't have the right slides because I don't use slides really, or you don't have the perfect script or because I don't do any of that, but you're there and you're available and you raise your hand and you speak from the heart, that's what's going to matter. Because the common denominator is that everyone who's listening right now by the age of like eight had their heart shattered. And if you start with that empathy and you just sit there and meet people there, that'll be a gift that they need that not enough people are giving. And so I thought, you know what? I don't think I'm qualified to write this song, but this guy's asking me to. And you know what? 
I wasn't given the gifts I have to keep them to myself. So I feel like morally obligated to get out of my own way. It's not about me. It's like, I'm just going to do it. I think that sometimes when people think they have a business problem or a marketing problem, it's just a courage problem. I think that we don't want to be rejected. I think that we don't want to hear people say no. And I think it's because when we were kids, there was a lot of rejection. There was a lot of no. And it came in different forms. Maybe someone we loved died and we were like, oh, I'm not going to attach so much to people. Or maybe somebody walked out. Oh, okay. I'm not worthy enough of this person's love. We internalize so much stuff as kids. So we will do anything to protect ourselves from being in pain. The thing is, well, then all we're going to get is pain because what we resist is what gets the strongest. You know, that's like at the gym, you resist things, right? And that's what builds that muscle on the gym, but uh, on the gym equipment. But the thing that we have to understand is that we, we already have people who don't like us. We have no control over that. And you don't need everybody to like you. You know, like I have a multi seven figure business. Like my business makes five to $8 million a year. I'm sure there are people who don't like me. I do not have a hundred thousand followers on Instagram. I don't need everybody in the world. It's like a small group of people who think that I can serve them. And I work hard to show up and make you know, make whatever I can make for them in their life that makes them feel great or heard or seen. That's it. And if you round it, we have, you know, almost 15 million downloads on my podcast. We started three years ago. If you round it up to the nearest million, still most people have never heard of me. Who cares? So what? It's like, that's the cost of being a human. That's the cost of admission. People will say no, people won't like you. You'll survive it. You've survived much harder things than the six people who live next door who tell you, I can't believe you thought you should go and do that. Who do you think you are? Okay, fine. I love the way you reframe that. If, If a win is showing up as your authentic self, as you said, people don't need you to be all together and revealing your imperfections, people connect with that. And that's actually one of the things I love about your podcast is how authentic and and vulnerable you are on the show. My wife and I were walking our dog yesterday. Her name is also Kathy. And I mentioned to her that she's a big fan of your show. So I mentioned to her that I was going to interview you. And and she said, and I'm quoting her here, she said, listening to your podcast is like talking to your best friend. Oh, that's very kind. And I so, appreciate that. Thank so, you. It's, it's so rare to hear that, though, because, I mean, so many people are obsessed with airbrushing the negatives, presenting a, a curated portrayal of themselves on, on social media. And you already alluded to this, but I'd love to dig a little bit deeper here. How do you manage to to let your authentic self come through in a world where there's so much pressure not only to conform, but also to present a perfect portrayal of our deeply imperfect lives. Yeah, I mean, it's beautiful. Thank you for being so generous with all of that reflection. That's really kind. I, I feel like, like I said, you know, I think, I think the greatest human need is to feel seen. I don't think we need people to fix our problems. I don't think we really want somebody to cheer us up. I think what we really want every day, multiple times a day is for someone to come along and go, I'm witness to this. I'm here for this. This is, this is a lot. And that makes us feel so known. It's like, you see my pain, you validate what I'm experiencing. Yeah, I do. I'm not here to cheer you up. Like I'm the person that when somebody I know is going through a breakup 
or somebody I know, God forbid, is going through cancer. I'm the one who comes over. I don't have a pep talk. I don't have balloons. I sit there and I cry and I hold their hand and I go, this is the worst of the worst. This is, this is the worst. It's the worst. This, this is the worst. And they cry and say, thank you for coming in here with that. Because everyone came in. They told me they're going to pray for me. They told me the silver lining. If one more person tells me I'm going to scream and I'm like, yeah, there's none of that here. There's just a, a witness. That's it. I'm just here to witness you and, and see you. Ah, people drink that in. We spend so much time wanting to be seen ourselves that we don't see other people. We spend so much time worrying that people are going to judge us. So we want to be perfect. We don't put things out. It's all such a waste of time. No one needs that. And no one's interested in that. People are self-absorbed. That's just how we are by human nature. And instead of you needing to be perfect, what would mean more to them is if you just showed up and made them feel seen. And when you do that, you're the most amazing, interesting person in the world. You're like, I didn't do anything. But they're like, oh, but you did. Because you're the only person who sat with me in this moment and really sat here, right? So that is the gift that every person can give other people. We just, we lose sight of that. We forget it. We're working so hard. We're dancing on our head, doing the splits, juggling fire to get people's attention. And it's exhausting. And it's not what works. It's not what sticks. I love that. And one of the things that I, I've noticed, at least in my life, uh, what gets in the way sometimes of us seeing other people is that we often don't see ourselves. Uh, we want other people to see us. But for me, at least, doing the inner work of like reconnecting with my inner child and some of the hurtful experiences I had growing up enabled me to, to see the hurt in other people. Uh, in other words, you often have to go in and, and examine yourself before you can come out and see the hurt in, in other people. It's really true. Um, it's kind of like the Marie Kondo thing where she has everybody organizing their homes. And what you do first is is you make things a lot messier before they get cleaner. You know, you take everything out of the closet. Because I think that the bottom line is we don't do what you just said. And so we don't have empathy for ourselves. We don't stop long enough to sit with our own stuff. So how could we possibly make space for other people? And then we realize boy, we've been making this so much harder than it needs to be. If I could just be present. When you're present, people want to be right up next to you. And they don't know why. They just want to be there. You don't have to do very much. It's actually do less. You know, just be present. And boy, does that power of presence. That's, that, when you really think about your life and memories, the moments you remember are the moments you were present. It's like when time stood still and, and your mom would read you a book when you were a kid. And you just remember that like pouring into you or when you walked on the beach and you just kind of like had that full sensory experience of the waves and the smell and you're like, ah, like presence, you know, presence is it. And I think that at the core of business, at the core of anything you want to build, radical empathy, radical. And when you make that what it's about, it'll grow so fast. You just watch out. It's going to be so fast. Kathy, we're coming to the end of our time here. I do want to ask you one one last question. Is there a uh, a lesson that you're still trying to learn? Something that keeps presenting itself? Constantly. I would say it's two things, okay? And they're really the same. So I think a lot of us learned as kids 
that love is something you earn. And if you're going to be loved, you're going to be helpful. If you're going to be loved, you're going to achieve something. If you're loved because you achieved something, if you're loved because you're helpful, that's nice or fine or whatever you felt. That's not love. Love can only be given. It can't be earned. So in my childhood, there was a lot of abuse. And then there was a lot of abandonment. You know, there was abuse. Then there was my dad leaving. Then there was my mom trying to commit suicide. There was just a lot of abandonment and sadness and all this stuff. And so in order for me to be loved, I had to literally be saving my mom's life or trying to mediate between my parents or trying to beg my dad to come back or deal with his anger or give him reassurance because he was so in a state of rage. Like he couldn't even, it was, there was so much required. So I've been working my whole life on, I am enough and I don't have to literally leave it all on the floor. I can give and I can also receive. I can also step back. I can also take more time. Like in my business, right? I make multi seven figures, but I don't automate anything. I show up, you know what I'm saying? And it's amazing. And I teach people how to show up and I show up in such a real way. I'm such an empath and I feel everything. And I, if I'm on zoom calls, coaching people, I say, it's going to be an hour. It's always three hours. No joke. (laughs) That has to stop. You know, like that has to stop. That's one thing. And then where that shows up also is like in my marriage, I don't understand the support part. So even when my husband's doing awesome stuff, I'll focus on like what I don't feel is working. And he's like, do you feel the support? It's like, oh, I wasn't receiving the fact that you literally just cleaned the kitchen top to bottom. Or, oh my God, I didn't receive the compliment you just gave me because it's it's such a foreign language, right? And so learning to really create that intimacy from a standpoint of let yourself receive, let people give to you. I'm working on that all the time and it's a constant process. Well, that's the perfect note to wrap up this conversation on, Kathy. Thank you so much for for joining us and for the work that you do. If people want to learn more about you and, and listen to your podcast, where should they go? So you can subscribe to the podcast, which would be great. Don't keep your day job. It's anywhere you find podcasts. And then I'm very, very active on Instagram. I'm there every day. So you can come find me there at Kathy.Heller. And uh, thank you for such a beautiful interview. I do so many interviews and this one had a very unique, loving presence. Like your whole vibe is just great. So thank you for sharing yourself with me today. Oh, coming from you, Kathy, that means so much to me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.